0: Hello friends. Thanks for joining us for the DDP. I'm Paul White. It's the 31st day of May and as is our custom on the last day of the month, that means it's essay edition time. You can find a written copy of all of our essay editions at paulwhiteministries.com and you can scroll back through wherever you're listening to this podcast. The last day of each month is the essay edition. For 2023, we are covering the essay wherever we are in our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And so here it is, the DDP Essay Edition for May, 2023. Our April essay covered the story at the beginning of Mark nine, the mountain of transfiguration. We've not made much progress in the month of May as we find ourselves at the end of the same chapter. The reason for this slow pace has a lot to do with my teaching style and my propensity to ramble into the weeds. But it's also due to the nature of the content of this ninth chapter. It just seemed wrong to speed through Jesus' famous warnings of offenses found in verses 42 to 48. So we took our time and looked deeply into the word used for hell. I hope our journey was one you found interesting and informative. We did not cover everything that could be said, of course, but we did get beyond the veneer and misunderstandings associated with a word that has accumulated a lot of baggage. If you want to go even deeper into the subject and examine the beliefs that form around the various interpretations, I suggest Her Gates Shall Never Be Shut, Hope, Hell, and the New Jerusalem, by Bradley Jerzak. Briefly, The warning of offenses passages comprises a trilogy of statements by Jesus in which he warns the listener about offending the little ones and causing them to stumble. A man who offends them would be better off dead. The trilogy involves cutting off one's hand or foot or plucking out one's eye, all of which are presented as better alternatives to going to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Jesus' statement involved the nearby valley of Gehenna and had nothing to do with the word that we translate as hell. That word is no longer helpful in understanding theology for it carries too much baggage. The medieval church, coupled with plenty of Dante and Milton, have caused us to see hell through a punitive and eternal lens, rendering all other options as heretical and satanic. But the tide is slowly turning. The King James Version of the Bible translated various words for grave, death, and underworld as hell, some 54 times. A remarkable number, considering how many different words they used to land on the same one. The New King James Version did a little better, pairing that number down to 32. The NIV, the ESV, and the Revised Standard used hell 12 times, and the NRSV found space for it four times. David Bentley Hart might be the world's foremost scholar of biblical Greek. His translation used the word as many times as the Hebrew and Greek did. Precisely, zero. Now, back to the narrative. The little ones that Jesus is concerned about would most obviously be children, like the child he holds in his arms in verse 36. But between that story and the warnings is another little story that seems out of place. The disciples report that they rebuked a man who was casting out devils in Jesus' name, but was not a follower of Jesus like they were. In other words, he wasn't one of them. Jesus told them to stop doing this because if that man wasn't against him, he was for him. To shore up this rebuke, Jesus adds that if you give a cup of water in his name, there is a reward. Well, the action of giving a cup of water is unheralded. No one is going to know but the guy that received the water. But God sees it. Then he warns against offending the little one. I think that Jesus starts with a child and then adds to the allegory. The man who was casting out devils was an outcast in the eyes of the disciples. He was low and not worth their attention. But he was working for the kingdom under the radar. He was displaying the way of love though without fanfare. Jesus includes that man in his little one's illustration because he's displaying the way of love and the disciples missed it. The cutting off of hands and feet and the plucking out of eyeballs are not literal commands to avoid a spiritual hell, nor are they allegories for self-flagellation to miss eternal damnation. Jesus is telling all of us to be serious about whatever causes us to go against the way of love. Take care of it, no matter what it is or how hard it is to remove. Put it off and the ending is much worse. What could have been taken care of early can eventually become something that we cannot take care of at all. Jesus is prophesying an end in that life to his audience. Gehenna was a finality, the place where the strangers and the outsiders were buried. It had a legacy as being the final resting place for so many rebellious generations in Israel's history, and it would eventually be the destination of over one million inhabitants of Jerusalem when the Roman armies sacked the city only 40 years later. Jesus used imagery from Isaiah and the prophetic stylings of Jeremiah. His audience would have recognized both, and would have remembered that when those two prophets warned their audience of impending doom, it happened just as they said, as Jerusalem fell in 587 B.C. to the Babylonian invaders. Better to get it right now than to end up in Gehenna, killed by the invaders. Well, there you go. Problem solved. But not so fast. We arrive at the final two verses where Jesus makes a declaration that lets no one off the hook. Imagine you're in the audience as Jesus tells the hand, foot, and eyeball story. You laugh like everyone else at the image of a one-eyed man who plucked out his eye because he could not stop looking at what he shouldn't look at. You know Jesus isn't being literal, and you realize you probably have some things to deal with in your own life. Maybe... You're smart enough to get the deeper meaning of the illustration that sometimes we have obstacles that pit us against the way of divine love and that the ending to that scenario is judgment. And we should identify those obstacles and take care of them now, lest the ending be tragic. Well, in either case, you can imagine some scenarios where you might need help, but for the most part, you're good. That's how we always hear sermons. Then comes verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. That statement is meant to strike at our heart. Everyone will be tested or seasoned with fire. Everyone. Not simply those who end up in Gehenna. That is a natural death brought on by outside forces. Everyone will go through the fire and the fire will season us to perfection. Just the way salt is meant to do. Salt and fire in the same illustration, playing off the statement from the Sermon on the Mount that we are the salt of the earth. Be the salt and season the world with the love of God. Fail to be the salt and the fire will salt you. Once again, let's pause and remember that we are not dealing with a post mortem hell as the destination for believers who do not witness properly or who fail to cut off their stealing hand. The trilogy dealt with a very real prophecy of what would soon befall the citizens of Jerusalem, brought on by their idolatry and their injustice. They should deal with that and stave off the catastrophe. They won't, and a catastrophe will come. But don't think that lets you off the hook. Jesus says, Everyone goes through the fire in one way or the other. And before you shrivel thinking that is condemning, just remember the one who brings the fire and walks through the fire. John the Baptist said that Jesus would come to baptize us with the Holy Ghost and with fire. We tend to think of these as one and the same, doled out at Pentecost. But the illumination of the Holy Ghost is separate from the fire. The illumination brings the real person out of the dark and into the light so that we can see ourselves in the light of his love. There we find comfort and direction. The bush burns but is not consumed. The the furnace rages but we have the fourth man in the fire. This is the warming glow of the spirit. But the fan is in Christ's hand and he's gathering what is his and separating what is not into a blazing inferno or better said he separates us, the wheat, and our chaff, the good from the bad. Again, not merely a post-mortem hell, but a place of revelation where whatever is not reflective of who we really are is gathered into the raging fire of the all-consuming love of God. Whatever is not salty is good for nothing but to be thrown out. Whatever is worthless is doomed. And the one who oversees this operation is the only one who can. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3:13 that the day will declare our work for what it really is. His use of the phrase the day was common for a reference to the day of the Lord whenever that might be. It's like his thinking in 2 Corinthians 5:10 when he says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In that text, lest you think your sins will keep you from God, he adds that God has already reconciled the world back to himself by not counting their transgressions against them. Thus, what we bring to the judgment seat of Christ is not our sins, but ourself. And whatever in us that needs judged will find our judge to be the same as our Savior. Paul's passage on the day includes the illustration that some of our lives are built with gold, silver, and precious stones, while other parts are wood, hay, and straw. That which can burn will burn, but our soul will be saved. What a thought. I wish I'd heard that preached a few times in my formative years. Whatever cannot last in front of his loving judgment will burn up, but Paul, you're going to make it. I think we appear before his judgment seat every time we repent, and in every fresh revelation of his love. But I do not assume those appearances are on this side of the grave exclusively. I expect to be salted by fire, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. The ties that bind me will be burned away, and the Son of God will comfort my renewal. I cannot imagine it to be entirely pleasant, but I expect it to be free from fear The flames of his love are perfect, and perfect love casts out fear. In fact, maybe fear is one of the things that needs to be burned out of us all. In conclusion, Mark 9 ends with Jesus telling us to have salt within ourselves and have peace with one another. These seem to go hand in hand. We are valuable to the world around us, but maybe no more valuable than we are to each other, our family and the faith. When we are enriching the lives of others, we promote peace and vice versa. The salt the world needs is the peace that passes all understanding. It comes only through Jesus, and it spreads only through us. Be serious about what causes you to go against the way of love. Better to deal with it now than have it do you end. Now, that is no threat of retaliation on the part of God, but the consequences of a life lived outside his love. Don't deal with it, and the fire will, whenever that may be, and however it may be. But don't fret, for the one who is the consuming fire is the one who walks through the fire. Or as he said to Israel so long ago in Isaiah 43:2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Grace to you.